I knew that I was the best. I knew that no one, I knew that no one could, could storytell it the way I did. And I also had, I had the relationships with the athletes. All, all those years in the that I talked about before, working at the magazines, at the brands, selling, being a team manager. I had earned, you know, I had capital that, that was my master's degree, so to speak. I was walking in with a PhD in the thing, and that gave me, that really gave me, I think, the superpower. Welcome to Playing Business. I'm Deshaun Kaiser. And I'm Dan Gardner. During season one of Playing Business, we sat down with professional athletes, sports commentators, league owners, and one of the world's most prolific climbers to ask the question, can success in sport translate to success in business? Selma is a visionary who has made an incredible mark on the intersection of sports, culture, and activism. From the skate parks of California to the front lines of social change, Selma's journey is an inspiring testament to the power of passion and purpose. In this conversation, we dive deep into his experiences growing up in a family that championed activism, his evolution from a young athlete to a respected influencer, and the pivotal role of sports in fostering unity and understanding. We'll also explore how Selma navigates the complex terrain of cultural diversity and representation, and how he's used his platform to shed light on critical global issues. Let's get into it. My, my can experience has def, like peaked early, like straight off the plane, into the yacht, sipping rosé. Um, I, feel, I feel accomplished already. I had the exact opposite experience. <laughs> I was an hour late out of the airport. Couldn't get a key into the, the spot. Walked over here, full sweat, finally drying off, getting ready to go for this. But Oh, don't let me wrong. My jet lag is very, very, very real. I slept like maybe three hours last night. But um, there's such good energy here. You know, like, that's what I'm liking, especially about this, this sports beach experience. Like, to be gathered out here with a bunch of like minds, a um, bunch of curious folks. Stoke. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for hopping on. Let me set the scene here. You know, uh, it's the early 90s. The busboy at, at, a, at a small restaurant called Potato Shack makes a $5 bet that, that seems to have changed his life. Give us a little story about, uh, you know, the Potato Shack days. That's really good research, man. Uh, yeah, I used to, uh, I was bussing tables at a restaurant in Encinitas, California called the Potato Shack. And I had been living in Southern California, North County of San Diego at that point for about, I'd say about five, six years. My parents moved from, from the East Coast. I grew up in New York, briefly in New England. Um, and then suddenly my mom didn't want to be cold anymore. And uh, we're, in, we're in San Diego. Um, Carlsbad specifically, which is like the hotbed of skate and surf culture. And I had, I, I, I started surfing because it was what all the kids did there. Um, but it fell very deep in love with it right off the bat. Like it was, it was the first spiritual experience I ever had in my life at like 16. I stood up on a wave for like 10 seconds, some Holy Spirit of some sort poured into me from like the heavens and like the center of the earth. And suddenly it was like, your life is going this way. And it took me over in such a way that like when I graduated from high school, I had no desire to go to college. My parents were very, very confused, like what happened to this kid? Um, and all I wanted to do was take jobs that allowed me to live my lifestyle. Like there was, there was a growth that was taking place in me from, from being 
from really diligently practicing this sport. You know, and the thing about surfing especially is that you're constantly in a battle with and learning how to build relationship with the ocean. Um, and so you never really master it. You know, the better you get, the bigger waves you're taking on. Um, and the, 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 the more you're having to adapt your skill set, both mentally and as an athlete, to, 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 to do this thing. And so anyway, um, it had got, got me to the point where like, I, I was bussing tables at this, this restaurant. I was a bar back at a bar at night. And my life was like, you know, it was chill. Like I, I was hustling, but I was happy. You know, I, I, I always tell my friends, like, I didn't have a car. I had a box spring mattress on the floor, two surfboards, no TV, but I was happy as could be. And the other thing about growing up in this, in this place in Southern California is that the industry was there. It's where the magazines were, a lot of the brands within skateboarding uh, and, and, and surfing and even snowboarding were there in this little hotbed of, uh, of North County of San Diego. And um, there was a big trade show in San Diego called the ASR trade show, the Action Sports Retailer Trade Show. It was like the, the hub of, of the industry internationally all came into San Diego at the convention center. And at this restaurant on a Saturday morning, five people sat down at this table and they all had on badges. Badges similar to the ones that we're wearing here uh, at Sports Beach in Cannes. And um, I saw that on all their badges, it said ASR Trade Show. Um, and I, I immediately identified, these are, those are my people. Now, their table wasn't in my section, but I knew for some reason, like, I got to meet these people. And so I said to my friend, Greg Whipple, a uh, Canadian volleyball player, who, uh, <laughs> I love that dude, but anyway, we were busboys together. And I was like, yo, man, I need that table. He's like, well, it's in my section. And they, they, look, they look like they're going to be profitable. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man, let me just have that table. He says, five bucks. I was like, you kidding? He's like, no, nah, five bucks. And he was dead ass, like five, five bucks. And for some reason, I was just like, all right. And I just pulled out my little cash, and I gave him $5. And that, that $5 ended up being, to this day, I think the greatest investment that I unknowingly was making in myself in that moment. As I continue to look what kind of sparks from that moment, I feel like there's a lot of those $5 moments, a lot of those moments where you, where you were completely comfortable with doing the unusual. As we, as we look at that, it sparks this domino effect. So, so that's Trans World. That gives you an opportunity to, to, to go do a host a snow summit. Yeah. Um, from there, you head over to Reebok, from Reebok to MTV, MTV. To yeah, my Japan. whole... I, th there's, this whole, there's this whole domino effect that kind of starts with that $5 bill. Yeah, I, I, I got a job at a magazine from going and talking to that table. I got a job yeah. at Snowboarding and Skateboarding Magazine. And suddenly I was like, I was in. I was in with the people who were shaping this thing. And it you know, it was an internship where I basically was answering the phones. But now I got to begin to investigate the lay of the land and find where my voice could fit into this culture, which led to you know, all those things you, did, you mentioned you know, six, seven years later. I'd started my own brand, and I had become a voice. Um, you know, as as Madison Avenue was starting to realize that action sports culture was this place where where kids were were living and doing their own thing, and were really creating culture and the music they were listening to, the clothes they were wearing, while also like creating this these sports in real time. Suddenly, people were like, "Yo, we got to put this on television." Right, like this is where the, the action is. Thus, the birth of extreme 
yeah. if you will. Because we didn't think of ourselves as extreme, but suddenly it was extreme sports because it wasn't traditional. Um, and as they started putting it on TV, they were looking for voices. Like, who's going to talk about these things? And that's how I started to, to, to make my way. MTV, um, ESPN, um, which was crazy. You know, I ended up becoming, I started off at ESPN as a sideline reporter uh, in, in snowboarding at the X Games and got a 13-year paid television education. Wow. Did you find there was uh, a parallel in that journey to when you first stepped on that wave and you would talk about that like euphoric sort of like spiritual moment where you're refining it, but you know, in surfing, there's only so much you can force against it. You have a force of, of water that's you know, taking you or knocking you down. Did you feel like through that career, because it's not like you knew every single step, it oh, seems man. like. Failure. That it felt very similar to that, get yeah, on the surfboard. That's, that's a really, really, really great question. Um, and it's spot on. You know, in surfing, you, you're literally like being held underwater, trying not to drown all the time. And then you make a choice to be like, I almost just died. Should I paddle back out and, and try again? And what will I do differently to yield like a different experience? And it was very much that in the industry. Like I got my job at Transworld, but I didn't have, I didn't have an identifiable skill set. You know what I mean? I wasn't a specialty at anything. I wasn't in marketing. I wasn't an advertiser. I wasn't in sales. I wasn't a writer. I wasn't a photographer. But I was a, a passionate consumer of uh, the, the the culture and an active participant. And I felt like I could communicate it. I knew that I could communicate it and I could storytell. But there really wasn't a place yet for someone who was gonna be like a, a oral storyteller. So I would, I got the opportunity to do that selling skateboards to people in shops on the phone, like storytelling. I got an opportunity uh, to do that, becoming like a, a promotions or a marketing person um, in, in, in selling brands and storytelling brands and as a team manager with athletes and storytelling these athletes um, to sell product. But within that, you know, I, f I got fired from plenty of places, laid off plenty of places. There was an ebb and flow of, of the industry at a, at a certain point where I was unemployed and trying to get like an old job back at Bank of America where I, I, had, I had been a bank teller um, right around 95, 96. And I didn't know if I would con continue but there was, it was that same thing of like, the great thing about these sports is they're, they're just built in falling down and getting back up. Like in, in order to get good at skating, in order to be a good snowboarder, in order to, to be a great surfer, you have to learn how to fall. You have to be very comfortable with, with like not making it because um, the wins are, 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 are minimal. Like practice, 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 nail this trick, have this moment, on to the next, right? Um, hopefully recorded. And hopefully recorded. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. No, I swear it happened. Um, and I, but I think it was that, it was that mindset that I that I learned from from participating and choosing to 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 long game these sports that allowed me to like navigate and find my way over the course of you know it took a decade before I like was like oh. I think this is what it is I do now, you know, when, when I began at, at the X Games. You mentioned being an, a good storyteller, and obviously that, that's what really sparked your career and ultimately led you to become the voice of, of all of X Games. But while your voice maybe had the part, it didn't necessarily look the part. 
No. You're, you're a black man, you know, <clears throat> surfing and snowboarding. I know where I come from, and as you mentioned, where you're at in, 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 uh, you know, on the East Coast, you know, we, we don't get on the top of things that have wheels. You know, <laughs> we, we can run faster than that. You know? Yeah. You know, it, it was, um, there, was, there weren't many kids at all that looked like me. I mean, my, in my high school, when I got to Carlsbad, there were, there was, my, my high school was like maybe 2,800 kids. There were three black kids, and two of them didn't live in the neighborhood but they were really good athletes, and they were brought in for track and field and football. You know, that standard old story. Yep. Um, and so folks assumed that I was that sailor. Where are you from? Like, you run fast? You play ball? And I did play basketball. I enjoyed it. But, like, um, the assumption that, like, me being coming to the school meant that I, like, I was some athletic prospect to, <laughs> for, for the legacy of Carlsbad was hilarious. But I think that... Growing up on the East Coast and growing up amongst lots of different people with different backgrounds and different cultures and just living in a way where you, you didn't have a choice but to be curious about where people came from um, and, and know their, their, their history, their culture, their food, etc., um, their music, that all like became a part of how I existed. So it made me curious when I landed where I was. I'm like, I don't know any of this. But I'm curious. I want to know what this surfing thing is. And like I said, when I tried it, it, it wasn't just like a, a recreation to me. Like, it opened something up. I was a b-boy growing up mm. as a kid. So for me, it was just like, oh, this is breakdancing on water. Yeah. You know, and that became my, that why I was so passionate. But, like, kids were not afraid to say to me, like, you know, you people don't even swim. What do you mean you're going to know how, learn how to surf? And, and it, was, it was an interesting landscape to navigate where people were constantly surprised that you're where you are and wanting to be like, oh, you know, oh. And it's like, it's, I didn't know you guys did this was, was something that I got for a very long time. Is, it, is, there, is that what sort of also attracted you to action sports? Because it, especially back then, it was a countercultural sort of, you know, I mean, now it still is, but it's, it's part of culture a lot more. Yeah. But back then, it was very countercultural, similar to, like, b-boy and hip-hop in the early days. Totally. It was sort of be creative outside the norm of, of the system. It was the same frequency to me as hip-hop. Yeah. Same frequency of, like, this, this beautiful alternative way of expressing yourself that went against the perhaps the grain of how everyone else was doing it. But it was allowed you to just to be free and not have to be like everybody else. So even though that I had to like navigate the fact that these spaces weren't populated by people who look like me, which was, I always say like, you had to, had to like, had to endure weird shit to, to get to doing the part where I loved it. The joy I got from doing it was such that it, it made it worth it to like, I'll put up with this shit. I'll learn how to navigate it because I'm not going to let anybody take that from me, you know? Um, and I also felt most comfortable there. Like you said, it was, just, it was this way to just be my whole entire self. And it would take a long time before I would see reflection, you know, where I would get to meet people and see people um, that look like me doing it. But whenever that, those moments would happen, it'd be like, yo, you do this too? And understanding, like, what it took for both of us to be there. Now we're having a much larger conversation about what it looks like to be black, brown, of any marginalized groups um, when it comes to the outdoors in general. Um, and I, I feel lucky that 
I feel lucky that to have a place now and have a platform to help raise awareness, to help give access to the next generation of kids who have way more community in being able to, to have some reflection of folks that look like them than I did. Um, so that, you know, hopefully, you know, before, before I'm done walking this earth, it's, I wouldn't even say more normalized, just like the idea of what the outdoors looks like and pursuing a lifestyle in the outdoors. Um, you won't be able to tell whether that someone does these things just by what they look like. That's my goal. You know, like you said, you know, to have to not have to say like, well, you don't have blonde hair, blue eyes. Like, how are you a surfer? You know, that's that's my goal. I think that's ultimately it, it, it helped the game. I don't know who the decision makers were then, but they're, they're a part of why extreme sports continues to set the cultures because it's so authentic. It's so against the grain. It's so individualized. So something like ESPN at the turn of millennium pick you as a host to be that ingrained in the culture new story about this sport, I think probably helped take it to another level. At that time, we hit the early 2000s, and, and X Games are really starting to become. What was that environment like? Did, did you know you were sitting on top of gold? Did you know it was getting ready to really take off, or was it still kind of that kind of counterculture experience? My first year at X Games um, in Colorado, I knew that something was happening. I was, uh, was, I was, like I said, I was just a sideline reporter. But what I had was, you know, they had, they had been trying to use stick and ball type uh, reporters and, and hosts to do these sports. And you know, like from football, like if someone doesn't know X's and O's and they're trying to be an analyst, they clearly are going to be exposed very quickly where the audience is like, this person doesn't know anything about football. And it's the same thing when it comes to these sports. You know, um, if you don't know the nuances and the hows of whys of what it takes to execute the thing, you're gonna sound stupid. And so that was that was ESPN's problem at the time. Like they had really great broadcasters who didn't know what they were talking about. So they had decided to be like, we're gonna go and find people from these sports and develop their talent and make them broadcasters. And that's how I got my my foot in. And I was, I knew that I was the best. I knew that no one, I knew that no one could, could storytell it the way I did. And I also had, I had the relationships with the athletes. All, all those years in the churches that I talked about before, working at the magazines, at the brands, selling, being a team manager. I had earned, you know, I had capital that, that was my master's degree, so to speak. I was walking in with a PhD in the thing and that gave me, that really gave me, I think, the superpower. But after Tony Hawk did the 900 um, at, at Summer X Games, which was my second X Games, that's when I knew, like, oh, this thing is about to go. Because Tony had the ability to, he wasn't thinking about it just from being a skateboarder. He wanted to be in the same conversation as any of your favorite athletes. Like, he, he knew that... He, we could transcend our world and be in the conversation among sports. So he, he, he kicked the door open with that 900, and then he held it open. He's like, everybody, let's go. He easily could have just made it about himself, but he really set the tone for what the industry was going to be. And that's when I knew, like, okay, this is going. And that's when I actually started to take it more seriously, um, to realize, like, oh, I could actually do this. And started going to all the seminars that ESPN opened, uh, offered. I'd fly to Bristol, Connecticut, and go sit amongst all the stick and ball 
uh, analysts and announcers and hosts and really learn. I'm like, okay, let me learn this craft. And t three years later, I was, became the host of the X Games. When you start to talk, and we've had a lot of these discussions about some of these emerging sports when it's just getting going at that same exact time. And as you just mentioned, it was kind of a, a switch that had to flip that said, okay, this is really taking off. Let me, let me really lock in because there's a real career here. Up until that moment, um, there's always kind of this, this like half in, half out. What do I do to, to make myself money while I also have this passion off to the side? From the athletes that you're around at that time, was that a, a theme that some of them were still businessmen, whether they're hustling on their own brands or, or bank tellers themselves? Or was, that, was that kind of the culture then? Yeah, I mean, the idea of like making it full time as a pro athlete, there were only a handful of people who had enough sponsorship to do that. X Games changed that where if you did well enough at the X Games, like now you had an opportunity to sell a lot more product that you had that was signature, but also to get bigger non-endemic sponsors, right? So you had like all of, you had the gaming brands that were now stepping up to the plate. You had um, all the electronic brands that were stepping up and suddenly people are making really good money and becoming superstars, you know, much, much, much like you know, any other, any other athlete. I mean, Tony Hawk obviously is the, he's the blueprint for that. But then Sean White comes along and, you know, takes it, takes it up next level. And suddenly, you know, guys are riding for Target. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're riding for Target. And then the, 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 the drink industry and Red Bull and Monster comes in. And suddenly you have one of those stickers on your helmet. It's more money than any of the, your other ancillary sponsors, your board sports. The shoe sponsorship game came in and really changed the, the game. And a lot of these athletes were starting those brands themselves, starting shoe companies, starting skateboard companies, um, and really realizing like, okay, we have an opportunity, starting clothing companies, we have an opportunity here to not just get the bag, like trying to kill ourselves, but to actually like formulate the, 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 the runway for what the culture is gonna look like. Yeah, I'm curious about that because in some ways, I think action sports, created the brand entrepreneur way earlier than actually major sports. Oh, for sure. You know, then maybe that's partially because you're in a creative sport industry where creativity is so focused. Yeah. But do you think it's like the hustle translates to entrepreneurship, translates to, you know, creativity? Like, wh what do you think that happened? Because even today, we talked about athletes struggle beyond just sponsorship to like equity and ownership and entrepreneurship. But like, action sports have been doing that forever. And I know that obviously you've started several brands along your way. So I have. how did like that kind of early days, especially go into your head of like, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to launch my own business. Well, the whole, the whole industry was built by us. So all the brands, skateboard brands, clothing brands, they were all built out of necessity. You know, even skate shoe brands, skate shoe brands were built because no mainstream shoe companies had figured out a way to make a durable, cool-looking shoe that could perform for skateboarding. Um, snowboard boots, same kind of thing. Like, can't wear ski boots, right? So you got to develop, like, a high-performance snowboard boot. Well, the only people who are doing that are the people who are practicing the thing. So the, the culture was just sort of always about innovating, board design and surfboards, snowboards, etc. We had to, the only, only way that we were going to be able to ride it as if we built it. Um, so I think when you have a new sports landscape where the people who are building it are the same people who are practicing it, 
it almost it was almost like this open source feel field of creativity and athleticism and artistry all taking place in one. So you're seeing what someone else is doing um, and being like, all right, maybe I can figure out a way to do that for, for solve for X. But I think, I think we had this, this, this really like open source creativity that was built out of necessity that made it not weird for, for you know, athletes to be like, all right, I'm gonna start my own brand. I'm gonna start my own company. I think I, I, I find, I found what's missing in in skateboard design that I can exploit this this space that's not being served, or like I said before, shoe companies, etc. You, you've thrown your hat in as well in, in that same game, you know. Yeah, with it was Merrick, um, obviously the um, Afro Surf. You know, you've had a couple brands that you've been able to to, to kind of spin up um, on your own. What, what gaps did you see in the market? What did you think you were bringing with some of the brands that you're building? Well, when we started Alpha Numeric um, in 99-2000, it was because there, was, there were no brands that, there were no inclusive brands that were speaking to the masses, but that came from the perspective of black and brown kids that were passionately experiencing this lifestyle. So you had Volcom, right? Hugely successful, Orange County counterculture um, brand that was the first one to be like, we're not just skate were skate, surf, snowboarding, and they did it authentically. But it was still like pretty much just white and punk rock. So we were like, can we make something that's like a hybrid between Volcom and North Face? That's like tech, functional, um, includes all these different sports, but also we're gonna speak to the import cards scene as well. Because part of what's cool about action sports is how you what did you drive in and how you look to get there, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was, that's what we did. And we were essentially a bunch of black, Filipino, Puerto Rican, uh, and Mexican kids that, that built this brand. And it went off. It ended up being a brand that essentially helped to launch the modern streetwear as we know it today. Um, because we were taking chances with design and tech and, and things that, the action sports world at the time was, for the most part, like same designs, throw a big logo here, but it wasn't like design land. And so we really went in. Ali Asha uh, Moore, brilliant, brilliant designer that was extremely influential on Virgil Abloh and a, and a host of others. He was my partner in the brand. Um, and so we found this, this, this gap, and, and it took off, influenced the industry um, as a result. You know, with, uh, with Mami Wata and Afrosurf, you know, it was, fast forward, you know, almost 20 years, this big gap in surfing and no one telling the story of surfing from an African perspective, from a black perspective. You got the largest continent on earth, right? Surrounded by water with more surfable coastline than any place in the world. You have surfers from Europe and America and Australia going to these places right, because the best waves are there and being like, we conquered, we conquested, we got the best waves on earth and the natives are cheering for us. But we're not telling the story at all about what the culture looks like from there outward. Mm. And I reached a point where I was like, you know, this is the next wave. You know, the, there was something that just took place called the Brazilian storm, where Brazil in the last 12 years, 10 years, went from being the last developed uh, country to 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 get surfing essentially, but, now, but being now the most dominant competitive uh, 
athletes in the sport, period. Like redefining high-performance wow. surfing. Wow. Prior to that, pretty much surfing in the media, et cetera, you were allowed to make fun of Brazilians because they didn't have good style, so to speak. The style was different. They didn't speak the language. They were super passionate. Some people took them to be aggressive. Um, and because they didn't look like, you know, Orange County bros, Brazilians were pretty much written off. But the more that they were written off, the harder they practiced, the, and, and the, the more these kids were just driven to the point where, you know, they, they broke the ceiling in 2011. And you have Gabriel Medina and Felipe Toledo and um, Italo Ferreira and uh, a whole host. They've had like five world champions wow. <laughs> in the last wow. 10 years, like dominant. And so that inspired me, seeing their revolution and seeing them turn the tables on the whole industry where now like the industry had no choice but to respect the fact that these dudes that we were mocking are actually setting the tone for what the sport looks like. That, that inspired me to be like, well, what does, what does the, the, the African diaspora's future look like if we start storytelling and, and really showing people that there is a culture the surf culture is not limited to the way it's been told up to now. Um, and, you know, Afrosurf, you know, the, the book obviously has blown people's minds. You have a 330-page coffee table book that's literally storytelling surfing to the point of like, hey, in the 1700s, in Ghana, mm. earliest written uh, records of, of surfing history by white folks who came to the coast and were like, these people are riding waves. That, like, takes the whole narrative of, you know, black people don't swim and this isn't for you and throws it out the window and it shows, like, hey, historically, we've had a relationship with the ocean as watermen, as fishermen across the continent for thousands of years. Okay. Now, suddenly, when you see that, maybe this, this whole mindset and this whole idea of, like, well, that's not for us, you realize that's not real and it gives a chance of being able to be curious and explore and build from there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun to, to be able to be in a place to just, just to shed a, bit, a little bit of light, uh, in these spaces, um, and, and build some brands to storytell that. Yeah. I think I have an idea just cause you keep dropping that line storytelling. Mm. You spin up a business, us three right now, we're going to go launch this next surf business. What part of the business are you taking? Obviously you're a storyteller, are you in marketing, are you getting your hands dirty? Are you building product? Are you touching and feeling product? I am, I'm a producer, right? So I'm gonna help you with the beat, right? I'm gonna advise you on the melody. I'll help you write some lyrics. Um, I'm gonna bring in the right musicians uh, to make the track. And then when it comes time to, to sell it um, and, and put it out into the world, um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to connect all the dots to help it live in the best way it can. Like I'm, I, I'm not limited to one space in the thing, but I also know that I'm not an expert in anything. Yeah. And that's, I, I, I try to assemble the smarter, people smarter than me to help execute vision. So in the early days, when you're starting a business, now it seems like on reflection, you know what you're good at. Mm. You know how to be a business person in that context. But in the early days, without even knowing, you know, you know what it means to do business, how were you looking at that? How was it hitting you? How were you approaching it? How was it affecting you? When we started Alpha Numeric, I remember, like, taking the job, I, prior to that, I had always been told what to do. I had, you know, I had jobs where a boss told me what to do. I could offer up ideas, but like, I was told what to do. Now it's like, all right, you're the boss. How are you gonna do this? 
And I remember just being, I remember being terrified. But it was also like, you, I think the key for me has always been to be comfortable in knowing what I don't know. And that's like my, my greatest asset. Like I know what I don't know, um, as opposed to like, I know everything. And in turn, glean, ask questions, build, who's doing it right, take, take advantage of, uh, of, of examples, reach out to folks for help. Hey, how do y'all do it? Here's what we're trying to do. I, I really, I built, I, I, found a, I found other brands that were like-minded that I wasn't competing against and, and made allyship. Um, we did a lot of projects together that way so that it didn't have to, like I, I didn't have to pretend that I knew what I was doing but really took advantage of, of strong partnerships and learning from those partnerships and executing things to be like, all right, I know how to do that now. And that's still how I do it to this day. So 20 years of, of building brands. Clearly you now have kind of your, your idea of, of who you are as a brand builder. The, the ultimate question of this podcast is, are you just playing business or are you doing business? I'm doing both. Yeah. You know, I think, I think doing business is playing business. And playing business is doing business. I think sometimes folks play too much and sometimes folks do too much business. You know what I mean? And so it's, if you live on the pendulum between the play and, and the execution and don't get too caught up on your accomplishments of being a doer and stay like fresh and curious in the play, that's to me, that's, 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 that's where the, the, that's what keeps me coming back. Is that surfing the wave? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's that play and do, man. Yeah, that's, that's really what it is. It is, you know, you kick out from a wave, right? And you just like had this incredible experience and then you turn and face the ocean and there's, <laughs> there's waves stacked out the back <laughs> that are ready to kick your ass and let you know that like, yeah, you did that, but like, stay focused. The be next pre- wave doesn't care. Yeah, be present because we don't care. Obviously, we're, we're heading into a new chapter for you, heading yeah. back to the X Games. Yeah, man, heading back to X Games after a, a 10-year layoff wow. um, to try and try and revive the brand, try and, 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 and bring it back to that thing that kids globally um, look to. You know, not, not just kids, but that, that, that people were able to see um, X Games on par uh, with, with all of their favorite sports. So we're... It, it, it's a cha- I think the most daunting challenge, um, but I, but I, I like I like our chances. I'm excited. Are you, I'm just c- curious about that. Are you looking at some of the other emerging sports like pickleball and things that are, you know, really challengers to some of the major sports and like absolutely creative around that? Absolutely, man. I'm looking as much as I can at sports that have been um, disruptive, almost in a way where people saw it, saw them as like almost annoying you know what i mean like like yeah. like that's like jumping on the handrail get away from yeah, us yeah you know yeah. i'm looking at those sports that started off as annoying that are now like you don't have a choice but to get down with us yeah. you know pickleball especially like when i see this when i see this like the the the, the war between tennis and pickleball and rollerbladers and skateboarders yeah, yeah. you know it, it reminds me very much of that but, but again, pickleball is about like simplicity and access, everybody being able to participate. Um, and so, yeah, definitely.
we looking at I look at that I look at you know I look at the, the functional fitness space and and, and and elements of what fit got right um, I, I look at like the the, the the alternative like tough mutter world etc you know where people who normally wouldn't want to do anything crazy feel compelled to be able to get a sense of accomplishment from from going out and, and, and being scared you know um, so yeah looking at all those kind of things awesome awesome well look hopefully we can circle back here in a year or two come out do it again a couple rosé drinks out, out yeah. on some yachts i believe it's rosé o'clock hey, there we go there we go <laughs> and we can you know circle back and see, see where uh, the x games are so i'm, yeah. I'm really excited to thank to you for having me man yeah, big awesome. big time awesome. thanks for listening to playing business as you know dan and i value good discourse and perspective so let us know what you agree with disagree with or we'd like to hear in a future episode Always appreciate a good review or a rating, and be sure to subscribe. Thanks to the On Discourse and Audio Up team for the production of the podcast, and see you in the next episode.